Church, how are you? How are you this morning? Yeah, you well? Yes? Uh-huh. You sure? Yes? Making sure. Yes. Jeremy, he's well. Yes? All right, good. Take your Bible with, uh, will you please, and turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 2. New Testament, book of Acts chapter 2. You recall from last week how Peter's sermon here in Acts 2, essentially the first sermon in church history, provided an explanation of what was happening in Jerusalem at that time when the Holy Spirit came from heaven as Jesus had promised. And then Peter provided a presentation of Jesus himself that Jesus of Nazareth was sent from God and attested by God. And even though the people foolishly crucified this Jesus, the very one who came to rescue us from our own destruction, God raised him up from the dead. Therefore, Peter says, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And of this we can be certain. We can be certain because God can be trusted And God can be trusted because His promises have proven true time and again. Because God always keeps His promise, always. Because God always keeps His promise, there are sufficient answers for the seeker and skeptic alike. So when the people, in verse 37 fall into the conviction of the Holy Spirit and ask, what shall we do? Peter provides a simple application. And it's this section I want to consider with you this morning. Namely, the dynamic between God's gracious work in our lives and our necessary response to that work. I want to consider this morning God's gracious work in our lives and our necessary response to it. And here's the takeaway. Because God is the great caller, you can call upon Him with confidence and confidently extend His call into the lives of others. Because God is the great caller, you can call on Him with confidence and confidently extend His call into the lives of others. So let's read this together. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. So again, thus far, Peter has explained what's happening here at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then he presents Jesus as both Lord and Christ. And here in verse 37, the people begin to respond. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for these moments we share in your word. And we just confess to you now that we want and need far more than a religious experience. We need far more than our Sunday morning routine. We need more than routine. What we need this morning is response. So even as we see um, the people here in the crowd of, in Jerusalem on that great day, and we see them responding to your great work, we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we could respond in similar fashion. Give us the grace to know Jesus as Lord in Christ this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now, church, were I to choose just one verse from this section to focus on, it would be verse 39. Verse 39 is basically the summation of Peter's sermon, the key that unlocks the entire message. Verse 39 is the point that the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, was, uh, has been driving at all along. Verse 39 connects the Old Testament prophecies mentioned earlier in this chapter to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, as recorded here also, to the lives of the people who gathered in Jerusalem that day. Furthermore, verse 39 extends outward to reach into our lives as well. Because verse 39 says, most assuredly, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's us. For all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now we could stop right there and just bask in the wonder of this simple statement. What promise is Peter referring to? He's referring to the promise found in Jesus Christ, as was prophesied by the prophet Joel some 600 years before Jesus was born. Six centuries earlier, Joel anticipated the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who would come to apply the grace of Christ to the hearts of people like us who are in desperate need of this grace. We need grace and mercy from God because by nature we veer away from Him and have therefore turned from our great calling to enjoy God and glorify Him always. Sin has broken relations with God and will end in judgment. This is all in Joel chapter 2. But in His great love, God moves toward us in Christ to restore 
what sin has destroyed. So we have this promise, Peter says, prophesied first by Joel, then reiterated in verse 21 here, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that we call upon the Lord in this way owes to the fact that God is calling us. The promise, verse 39, the promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter is saying through Joel, call upon the Lord. And then he says, God is calling you. In truth, we cannot call upon God unless and until He calls upon us. The Bible teaches that we are spiritually dead in our sins, and dead people, as you know, cannot call. They can't do anything. Apart from God's prevenient grace, therefore, we will forever remain in a state of spiritual death, Not until God's call arouses your spirit within can you even think about calling upon Him. Those who called upon the Lord that day, according to verse 31, were added by God to the church. So then, knowing God to be sovereign over the affairs of salvation, Peter stresses the fact that God is actively calling people to Himself, then adding them to His church. And knowing also that we must personally respond to this call, Peter likewise emphasizes our need to call upon the Lord. For when we call upon the Lord in this way, we are in fact answering His call to us. Or as Os Guinness puts it, God's primary call, uh, His address to us always comes in two ways. It always has two dimensions. It is on one hand a summons. Well, on the, at the very same time, it is an invitation. It is a summons and an invitation. Which brings us back to verse 39, because verse 39 is basically an invitation to receive God's promise of salvation. And so we move from the call of God to the response of the called. Peter made clear that Jesus is both Lord and Christ and that salvation will come to all who call upon his name. In my own life, there was a time when I was not a follower of Jesus. I was not a Christian. I was not saved. I was accountable for my sinful heart and hadn't yet experienced God's forgiveness or the promise of new life in Christ. But then came a time when I did. When the promise was mine to hold on to, when I was completely forgiven and cleansed and made whole, when I was saved, When I became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and the change occurred 
when as a 16-year-old high school student in my junior year, I called upon the Lord. I'd been going to church for a few months, learning about God, learning about myself, learning about the problem of a sinful heart that was keeping me from God. I had attended a neighborhood Bible study. I was becoming more familiar with the Bible and more importantly with the God of the Bible. I was meeting and getting to know people who were already walking with God, very normal people, which surprised me. (laughs) They weren't weird, as I assumed they'd be. They did not fit the stereotype I had of Christians. In fact, they were very much like me, with interests like mine, and yet it was obvious to me, and I know you've experienced this too, it was obvious to me that they they were also very different There was just something about them, the presence of God in their lives that piqued my interest and drew me closer to Him. But hear this. None of these things are what brought about the change in my life. Though I can look back now and see how God was using these things to call me to himself, I could not live vicariously through another's relationship with God. Going to Bible study didn't forgive me or cleanse me or restore me, restore me to God. Go, uh, attending church each week as helpful as it was and as much as I enjoyed it, couldn't bring about the internal change that needed to occur in my own soul, it wasn't until I called upon the Lord myself. It was after church one Sunday, after hearing the pastor present the simple gospel, as he often did, that I went home and called upon the Lord personally. That's what needs to happen if you are to receive this promise from God. You must call out and take hold of Jesus. That's when my life changed. That's when I became a Christian. That's when I received Jesus as Lord and Christ. That's when the Holy Spirit brought to my awareness the love of God and my need of His grace and mercy. It was when I called out to God in response to his call to me. Now what does this mean? What is calling upon the Lord like this? What does it entail? It means coming to a place of decision in your own life where as an act of the will you decide to return to the Lord Rely on the Lord and rest in the Lord. When the people asked, What shall we do? Peter replied with specifics Repent and be baptized. I want you to notice how he didn't say that there was nothing they could do. As if it's 
entirely up to God and completely out of our hands. Instead, he urged them to repent. The Greek word is metaneo, which means to think differently or to reconsider. It's to, we talked a little bit about this last week, it's to consider the path you're on with respect to the path you should be on. To consider the course of your life now in relation to the life God intends for you. So as you take stock of your present situation, just ask yourself, am I walking with God down a path of His choosing, or am I straying away from God down a path of my own? What became clear to those in the crowd that day was that they were on the wrong path, heading in the wrong direction, so the Holy Spirit brought conviction to their hearts, persuading them to return to the Lord. Now, usually a person doesn't return or repent until he realizes the peril at hand. So when I'm sick, for example, I may tough it out. See if this resonates with any of you. I may tough it out initially in the hope that it just gets better on its own. But if that doesn't help, I may take some medicine to at least try to feel better. Not really getting to the sickness, but at least I feel a little bit better temporarily. But if the sickness worsens or I notice other alarming trends eventually I must call for help. Now, if you're stubborn like me, as my wife can attest, calling the doctor is usually the last resort. But at some point, we must realize that our condition, like the sin nature within, is beyond our ability to resolve. So if we're to be helped, we, we must stop being so stubborn. We must put our pride aside and we must pursue an entirely different course of action. Repentance then, hear this, is not simply ceasing to do one thing. It's also the commencement of another. In other words, the biblical idea of repentance entails more than coming to a stop on your current path. It's stepping onto a new path altogether. So when the Holy Spirit brings conviction to your heart, take heed and repent. That's grace for you. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction to your heart, He's dealing graciously with you. Like the parable of the prodigal son, it means returning to God and to a relationship with Him. It's like the song this morning, Relent. It's coming to this place in your life where you realize the path I've chosen is heading for destruction. 
and all of the devastating consequences of my bad decisions are just lying in my wake. And I'm turning from that now. And I'm returning to God. I think this also explains the reference to baptism. Baptism is part of repentance because the act of Christian baptism is a way of personally identifying with Jesus. Peter's not saying that baptism is required to be forgiven, but that if you're forgiven by God, why wouldn't you want to declare it and identify with him in this way? Baptism is a sign of true repentance It's an outward expression of an inward reality. It's a physical demonstration of a spiritual rebirth. By the way, I mentioned last week that we were longing for more baptisms in the church and looking to celebrate baptism together very soon. And just in the last week, two people have come forward expressing their desire to be baptized. And so I just want to continue to put the call out there that if you want to declare what God has done in your life and identify with Jesus in this way, in Christian baptism, as the Bible instructs, let's talk and let's get you baptized. Now, not only does calling upon the Lord imply a return to the Lord, it also speaks of reliance upon the Lord that involves placing trust in Him. I have a question for you. When Jesus called his first disciples, what did he ask of them initially? To follow. Simply to follow. He didn't overwhelm them with tasks to do, books to read. Disciplines to adhere to, or even scriptures to memorize, morning devotions to keep, witnessing efforts to maintain. Tithes and offerings to give. Now all of these things have a place, a very important place in our growth in, in, as Christian believers. But first and foremost, Jesus called them to follow. And that's what he's saying to us. Like a master to the apprentice, they were, he simply asked them to follow his lead to go where he goes, to observe what he does, to listen to what he says, basically to learn the heart of God and allow him to transform your own. They were fishermen by trade. Now they knew the waters well and were likely quite good at what they did, but they certainly were not experts in religion that they left their livelihoods and the tools of their trade behind, however, pictures the essence of true faith. In those moments, with their actions, they were placing trust in Jesus. 
They trusted Jesus. They trusted that Jesus would care for them, provide for them, teach them, and prepare them for a life of ministry. In short, they were relying upon Jesus in every way. I mean, Jesus was their all. I love that line in the song. Um, Now I'm going to forget it. I love that line in the song that uh, uh, I surrender. My goodness, what's the line in the song? I surrender. Yeah, and then it's something like my life. It's like it's no big deal to give my life for the life you're giving me. That's my paraphrase of that line. How does it really go? You give life that is worth the loss of mine. You give life that's worth the loss of mine. Yes, I'll leave my fishing tools behind, my livelihood, because you give life that's worth the loss of mine. In Matthew 11, Jesus illustrates this kind of reliance when he says with these very familiar words, I know you've heard these, many of you, when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, who's he talking to? Church, I believe he's talking to people just like us. Because I think there are people in this room I know there are. I know there are because I'm in this room. There are people in this room who are carrying a heavy burden. And they've grown weary. And they're trying so hard in their own strength to please God and work their way through life. People who had grown weary under the weight of burden, people, probably some in this room, who are on the brink of exhaustion, many of whom are ready to throw in the towel mentally. What does he say to them? He extends an invitation. He offers himself. He welcomes to himself those who want to trade their burden for his yoke. The yoke, of course, was a tool used to attach two animals, usually oxen. It was often used for training in that a younger ox would be yoked to an older, larger, stronger one. And because the stronger ox did most of the work, the younger was free to learn from the older without any unnecessary expectations. So Jesus uses the yoke to illustrate how he offers to be with us, to walk alongside us, and to teach us 
and help us live life. And what does he promise? He promises to be gentle and patient. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now listen to this, church. Isn't it reassuring to know that Jesus never loses His temper? Never expects more from you than what's reasonable. Because he understands you. He understands everything about you. He understands where you are on the spiritual growth curve. He comes to meet you on your level at the point of your need. And the reason his yoke is easy and his burden light is because he's doing all the heavy lifting. The burden is the same. The yoke is carrying the same weight, but he's carrying it. So as you rely on Him, which, by the way, requires humility on your part and a teachable spirit, as you rely on Him, He promises rest. Now, what kind of rest? And what does it mean to rest in Jesus like this? I think if I could, if I could just kind of summarize it in my own thoughts here, I, th- I think it means knowing that Jesus has got it all covered. In our paraphrase, we may say something like, knowing that Jesus has our backs and our fronts and our sides. means knowing that no matter what comes your way, however unexpected or difficult, He is aware of things that we can't see or understand, and He is in control. It means no matter how strong temptation may be, or how persistent our own doubts are, He is strong to save. He can overcome them. I want to illustrate with a story about Hudson Taylor. Um, how many of you are aware of Hudson Taylor? You, you know vaguely his story. Not everyone, some do. So for those who may not be aware, Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the mid to late 1800s. Founder of the China Inland Mission, the 34-year-old Taylor's vision was to move inward from the coastal cities to penetrate China's heartland with the gospel. Within 30 years, the Christian Inland Mission, or CIM, as it came to be called, had grown to include well over 600 missionaries serving in nearly all of China's provinces within 30 years. That's astounding. Even today, even today, Christians in China credit Hudson Taylor for its strong gospel presence, and they share his single-minded passion to reach all the Chinese people, including Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu. Many have heard of Hudson Taylor, but very few of us know about his crisis of faith or about the season in his life of spiritual unrest. 
1869, in a letter to his mother, he talked about how distant he felt from God and how full of sin he was. Overcome by many temptations, he questioned how he could even be a child of God. Longing to be sanctified and made whole, he just asked his mother to pray with him and to pray for him. Six months later, he received a letter from a fellow missionary named John McCarthy. Most of us probably never heard that name. But this letter became the answer to his prayers. Because in this letter, McCarthy explained what he had recently discovered about holiness, and he stressed that the problem with many who pursue holiness is defective faith. We could say that many who are pursuing righteousness, many who are pursuing to be right with God, many who are pursuing to please God, many who are pursuing to to live the Christian life, the problem is often defective faith. Because they have a faith that strives in its own strength rather than rests in Christ, McCarthy said, the joy of abiding in Christ eludes them. And McCarthy went on to encourage Taylor to stop striving for faith, but to look to the faithful one instead. When Hudson Taylor read that letter on Saturday, September 4th, 1869, in a little mission station in Chin Kaing, he saw himself as never before and perceived his union with Christ in a whole new light. He had been serving God as a missionary for nine years with incredible fruit. But from that moment on, his life and ministry were on an entirely different plane. His spiritual secret, as he began calling it, was the exchanged life. Or as Stephen Siemens describes, he had discovered that restful sense of sufficiency in another. In John 15, in that classic passage where Jesus... um, talks about the vine and its branches, we are reminded of our need to abide, to remain and rest in Christ. Now, returning to Jesus is not a one-time affair. Relying on Jesus is not done once only. Resting in Jesus is to receive from Him daily nourishment just as the branch draws its life from the vine. Hear this, church. Rest is found not by warding off the anxieties of life, but by leaning into the sufficiency of Christ. Like a nursing child, content and secure in its mother's arms. 
You know, on Friday, this last week, two days ago, I learned that one of the pastors of one of our sister churches, denominationally, his wife, just this last week, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Which obviously is just devastating news. And we're praying for this woman, we're praying for her husband, we're praying for their church. And as I was praying and I was rereading the email that he wrote, I noticed how he said that he and his wife, hear this, as difficult and as life-altering as this is, how they were resting in the Lord. Those were his words. Loved ones, when you call upon the Lord and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, there is peace that surpasses all human understanding. Even if the affliction remains and the earthly outcome isn't what we'd choose, we have the promise of salvation that rescues us from defeat and despair to hope everlasting. There is a kind of rest this world cannot offer a deep level rest that reaches the soul and marks the child of God. You know how I said how when those early days before I was a Christian, I would look at these Christians and I was amazed by them, how they were very much like me and yet how they were totally unlike me. And one of the things I noticed, one of the ways they were totally unlike me is they had peace. So again, how does one call upon the Lord? How does one respond in this way? It's by deciding to return to the Lord. It's by deciding to rely on the Lord. It's by deciding to rest in the Lord. That's what it means to call upon Him by faith. Now lastly, I I do think it's worth a moment or two just to consider how others come to call upon the Lord as well. In other words, how is God's call extended or passed along? How does it go out into the world? How do others come to hear the call of God personally? How? Any ideas? The Holy Spirit, absolutely. Working through us. Hear this, church. God shares His call through those who have been called. In Romans 13, I think this is the passage you were referring to, Gwen. In Romans, I'm sorry, Romans 10, verses 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul likewise quotes from Joel chapter 2, as Peter does in this chapter, when he assures that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Paul elaborates. But how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So here, God is saying through the Apostle Paul that people cannot call upon the Lord without believing in the Lord, but they can't believe without hearing, and they can't hear without someone telling, and people can't tell unless there are sent. But thankfully, God has done the sending already by sending us. Church, we have a message worth sharing, and there are people who need to hear this message. They need to know the promises of God, the good news of the gospel, so that they may believe and call upon Him who is calling out to them. And then look with me here at 1 Peter, I'm sorry, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. It says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. I just get this mental image of Peter standing maybe on the steps of the temple courts. I'm not sure where he's standing, but he's standing there and he's like, repent and be baptized. And then he's just like, like he's just like he's leaning in and he's come on, you guys. And he's just talking more. And he's saying, come on, I'm exhorting you. There's life here. Like, I have life I'm offering you, and it's right here in Jesus Christ, who is Lord. And, and you guys, we don't want to, I don't want to get to this place where we're just like, oh, isn't Peter so wonderful? It's like, no, 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 he's not actually. God did wonderful things through him, but he's just like us. It's such a good model for us to just bear witness to the promises of God, to just bear witness to the promises of God. You're going through a bad day. I, man, I totally, you're going through a bad season. Life is hard. Sin is corrupting. The consequences are all about us. Can I pray with you? Can I cry with you? Can I just listen and be with you? But let me tell you, this isn't the end of the story. There is hope in Jesus Christ. There is life in Jesus Christ. These are the kind of conversations we're having in our living rooms, in the coffee shop, in the workplaces, in the classrooms. Just bearing witness to the promises of God and continually exhorting the people in our lives to call upon His name. Because God is the great caller. Because God is the great caller. Church, you, you, you can call upon Him confidently. just want you to know that. You can call upon the Lord today and throughout the day with great confidence. Whatever it is that burdens you, you can just bring that to the Lord. You can call upon Him with confidence. He's gentle. He's lowly in heart. He promises rest for your souls. You can call upon Him with confidence and you can confidently extend His call out into the world and into the lives of others.
May God help us. Amen. God, we return to you, even now in our hearts, in the quiet of our hearts. We just want to return to you. God, we're aware, or we're aware at least on some level. Certainly, we don't know, we're not aware of all of it, but we're aware that we've strayed even this week. Even this week, we've just been, I'm sure there have been moments where we've been distracted, where we've pursued our own our own ends. And so we just want to we just want to return to you now. We just ad- admit that that our way um, is not best and yours is. We want to rely on you. Help us to do that. Help us to trust. Help us to follow. Help us to take your yoke and be attached to you in this way. And then, Lord, would you just, would you help us to rest in you, to, to rest in your absolute sufficiency, and to know that you're not finished with us, but this good work that you've begun in us, you are perfecting and you will complete. And so we just avail ourselves to you. We need your... Um, We need your sanctifying work. We need your presence. We need the power of the Spirit of God. We need the person of Jesus to become even more real to us on a daily, practical level. So do all these things and more for your name's sake. And for the good of your people, we pray. Amen.